Father God, we love you and we thank you for this opportunity to serve you. You have served us with your word. It's bread to our souls. It's guidance to our lives. It's light to our feet and our path. And so, Lord, we ask that you would cut through the confusion today, that you would clear out any darkness, that you would shine your brightness. Lord, if there's correction needed in any of us, we ask for that. We invite it because we know that your correction is good. Like a surgeon's scalpel, you can carve out those conditions within us that bring about disease and death, and you can infuse us with your everlasting life. And so we ask for that today. For any among us, Lord, guests present or streaming or hearing the recording or perhaps others who need a special touch from you or who've never opened to you before today, we pray, Lord, soften their hearts, open their ears, and as your people, Lord, we pray, soften our hearts, open our ears, and help us not only to hear, but to believe, not only to see, but to understand, not only to know, but to do, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask the guys in the booth if they can bring the slides up for me. I mentioned that if you and I are attempting to follow Jesus and we find it simple to do, the problem that we are encountering is we are not listening to the reality of what the Lord is speaking. The truth of the matter is the life that God calls us to live is not complicated in its essential structure. I have decided to follow Jesus I'm not turning back from him. I'm going to give myself totally to him. I'm going to seek his will through his word. I'm going to connect with his body through his people. I'm going to give my thought life, my words, my action and conduct over to him. But what happens when you do that? I'm going to throw open the gates here and say, I'd love somebody to yell back at me. What happens when you try to follow Jesus faithfully in everything you do? What's one thing that you experience? Anyone? Failure. Failure. Thank you so much. Bless you, sister. Hallelujah. Someone who relates to me. You fail. Because it isn't easy. And how about when you get to the crossroads of, this is what the word says about me. This is what the word says is how I should live. This is what the word dictates in this circumstance. This is what the heart of God would have me do. Forgive somebody that's cruel to me. Hold my tongue when I want to lash out. Give what I want to hold on to. Serve when I want to be served. And I don't want to do it. Sometimes I don't want to do it. Can you relate? And sometimes I do want to do it, and I fail to do it. I fail to do the thing that God told me to do, or I do the thing that God told me not to do. We follow Jesus, and Jesus seems to bring us to a breaking point. Hallelujah. It's called the cross, and it's the crossroads. It's where you really see the evidence of who has truly decided to follow Jesus without any turning back, because when they come to the cross, they go to the cross. They carry their cross, as Jesus said. What did Jesus mean when he said, if anyone wants to follow me, you say, I've decided to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, pick up your cross. What is it? 
It's where your will is at a cross purpose with God's will. And you say, just as Jesus did when he faced his cross, you say, not my will, but yours be done. And you know what that shows? That shows who's king in your life. Because if you do what you want to do, you wear the crown. But you're not carrying the cross. You say, well, I thought Jesus carried the cross for me. He did. When he is enthroned in your heart and ruler over your life, guess what? The power of his rule, his very spirit, which is he himself, God, comes to live within you and to enable you to do that which you could not do. He came to seek and save the lost and set them on the path and give them the power to do it. He said, if you're weak, if you're weary, if you failed, come to me, put my burden on you, my cross on you, just as he took our cross on him. He says, be yoked with me and I will pull the load. My spirit will enable you to do that which you could not do. Now, you and I, if we believe that, we immediately and eternally receive the rulership of God over our lives. Hallelujah! <laughs> Praise the King! Does that mean that people who aren't following Jesus, who don't know and serve the Lord, aren't under His rule and reign? It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is they're not available to His blessing. Remember what we read a while back earlier in the chapters of Samuel? Ichabod. The glory has departed. When people turn away from God, it doesn't remove God from the throne, but it removes the power of God's throne room. Like we heard last week from Pastor Ricky Ross, the glory of God departs from us. Not in the sense that God is God, but in the sense that they've turned away. They've turned away from the light, and they're walking into the dark. God is still king, but they're not living in the kingdom. And the kingdom is glorious. The kingdom is blessing. The kingdom is life and life more abundantly. The kingdom is the power to patiently persevere in the presence of every obstacle and every kind of pain and hardship and to do so with trust and confidence. The kingdom is the king in your life, in your heart, on the throne. Today's message is about the search for a king in ancient Israel, but it's also about you and I looking at our lives and looking for who is enthroned in my life. As I say, when we come to the Lord and give our lives to the Lord, there's an instantaneous and eternal application of his sovereignty in our lives, but there's an ongoing work of sanctification that he is going to bring to pass in our lives, and that means there's a pathway to be walked and we walk it carrying the cross. And the cross is simply this. I have decided to follow Jesus. And I have determined I will not turn back. So when I fail, as we fail, I will trust that God's success, God's victory is greater than my failure. I will confess my sins because I know my sins are forgiven. I confess them not to ask once again, over again, that I need new sacrifice, there's one sacrifice forever. I confess them to reflect my submission to him. I confess them to show him that he is my king. 
and that I know when I have turned away from him. And if I don't know when I've turned away from him, and sometimes I don't, he still knows, and so I trust that his grace is sufficient for me because his strength is made perfect in my weakness. So sometimes I fail, but I don't need to stop believing. And when I succeed, I don't count myself as having been successful, but rather I say, hallelujah, glory to God. It's God's success ruling and reigning in me. So every failure is covered, but it needs to be also recognized. And every success is submitted. It needs to be celebrated, but not as a point of arrogance, but rather, once again, as a point of trust. Everything in our lives becomes an opportunity to submit ourselves again to the reality, the totality of Jesus as king in our life. And when Jesus is clearly recognized as king in your life, the joy of Jesus will dominate in your life. There will be hard times. There will be times of failure. There will be times of confusion. But you'll never be alone. You'll never be lost. You might feel lost. Sometimes in my walk with Jesus, there have been times, and some of them have been recently, where I have called out to the Lord in the midst of circumstances so emotionally trying or so, so beyond my ability to comprehend how to deal with them that I, I just throw my hands up to the Lord and say, I, I'm so lost. I don't mean I'm lost as unto hell. What I mean is I don't know the way. I don't feel the hope. I don't have the strength. I don't know what to do. But really, I do. In that very prayer I'm showing, the only thing I know to do is look to you. And that's the right thing to do. And you know, I can honestly say, and I know so many of you can and do as well, and do say it, I mean to say to you, let it be known, he never fails to answer those prayers. Sometimes it requires that golden word that starts with a P. What is it? Patience. patience. It's the year of patience here at PCF. Every year is a year for patience in the Lord. Patience is always rewarded by the Lord. But sometimes it is true that you have to pray and keep on praying. Well, Jesus said that. He said, ask and keep on asking. He said, knock and keep on knocking until the door opens. But don't knock in fear that God isn't there. Knock with the confidence that he is. Come boldly before the throne of grace and call in the name of the Lord and you'll find salvation in that. Oh, it's good to have God as our king. I just thought of this and I hadn't thought of it in many years actually. It just dawned on me now. It's probably silly. I'll probably regret saying this, but it's true. You know, I, I was a film major in college and that meant that, especially in those days, when I, back in my 20s, I went and saw everything, just about, that came into a movie theater. And I, I went and saw The Lion King, the original animated Disney film, The Lion King, when it came out. It, was, it, it remains a beautiful work of animation art. It's an extraordinary technical achievement, that film. But it's well known now, the, the opening sequence, all the animals of the savannah, of the... African Plains, you know, responding to this dawn call that is sort of a, a regal uh, uh, charge. Everybody come forward. There's a new prince that's going to be crowned prince, right? And uh, Rafiki does his little number with the, the anointing. It's a, it's a very uh, sort of quasi-biblical moment. I don't mean to say that The Lion King is a religious film per se, but anywhere where you see 
the notion of king being raised up in the nobility of what it really is, there's, there's a kernel of truth to be found there. I remember being overwhelmed by the beauty and the magnitude of that moment and thinking something that maybe Americans sometimes feel, which is it would be wonderful in a way to have a king if the king was good. Not scar, right? <laughs> you don't want a bad king, but a good king, a great king. What a thing. I remember watching that and feeling overwhelmed with emotion. And I had that sense that you can have when the Lord is close in your mind and in your heart. You can hear from him. It's not an audible voice, but it's something in your mind that you can hear. And yet it's clearly his voice. You can recognize it. And the voice of Jesus said to me, I am your good king. I wept in the movie theater, not about the lion on the screen, but the lion of the tribe of Judah who is king in my life. And I realized I'm so unworthy to even be a subject, the lowest subject in your kingdom. But no one of us that has been brought into the kingdom has been brought in as the lowest subject. He has made you to be on the throne with him. You don't have to search for a king because the king came searching for you. Well, could probably end the sermon there, but no such luck. I'm going to go further. You're going to be glad that I do because the Lord has more to say. In doing so, I want to take this moment to review a little bit of where we've been because part of the reason why we do these progressive studies in the scripture together is so that you and I can get traction with some of the essential lessons that the Spirit is speaking to us as a church, to, to his people in this day and age, through the scriptures that we're studying. So let's look at the uh, seven chapters of 1 Samuel that we've already looked at together. Now, if you're a guest with us today and you've not been part of these messages, you can still find them online. You can read the word and read it there. But I'm simply going to summarize some sort of essential bullet points from these chapters, not the details of what occurred in them. Suffice it to say, in chapter 1, we are introduced to the story of Samuel by first being introduced to the mother of Samuel, Hannah, a woman of patience, who is barren. She's unable to conceive. And so this is a great burden on her heart and a great disappointment in her life and a great dashing of her dream to be a mother. But she finds in that barrenness a place of seeking after the Lord, a place of urgent hunger for his holy help. And that's a good thing for you and I to find in ourselves. In fact, maybe part of the blessing of the reality of us failing is that it can make us hungry for God's holy help. No wonder James says, count it a joy when you face trials, because the trials will help you to know that you need the Lord. If you have everything all wrapped up and tied up with a bow, it's easy to think, well, I've got this all together. But if you realize I'm in desperate need of help, then there is a God who is really available to you. Now, I don't mean to say that God doesn't help us and that he doesn't equip us and that we don't mature and grow, but it's good to keep touch with your need. It's good to remain humble in your heart and call on the Lord for help. Pray. Pray. I had a dream last night. And uh, sometimes when I have a dream on Saturday night, I figure if there's something about the Lord in it, then it may, re may be relevant to what I'm going to preach. And uh, in the dream, I was talking to somebody, and it's not a person I can recognize from life at all. As I look back on the dream, I don't know who this person was. But in the dream, it was somebody who had come to the church, 
and uh, we were going to be praying in a group together, and this person said, well, go very slow because I, I don't know how to pray. And I said to them, you do know how to pray, actually. It's very easy. All you have to do is just talk to God. It's just so simple. You don't need to be intimidated about it or whatever. But as we began to pray, the person began to object to the sorts of things that we were praying that were reflective of the scripture. And they were saying, well, I don't believe that and I don't accept that. And I know that I'm a good person and I don't need all of that. And I, in the dream, felt the Holy Spirit to anoint me. And I said to them, how can you know what it means to be a good person if you don't pray to God? Because the person was saying they don't pray, but they were confident that they're good. Now, you could say, well, that was just a dream, and it was, and I'm not trying to weight it with any more import than that, but I woke up from it feeling like that is part of the problem of our culture today, is that people are utterly persuaded that they know what's right, and they know what's wrong, and they know what to do, but they're not interested in hearing from the Lord. Looking to the Lord for help and consistently praying to him opens up the avenue of receiving blessing from him. Therefore, be a faithful servant. If you've decided to follow Jesus without turning back, then you need to be a faithful servant who waits upon the Lord. I'll wait for the screen to come back up. And when waiting upon the Lord, we need to exhibit patient trust. Not so that we show God how great we are, but because it's through that mechanism of trust that our faith can grow. No matter what happens, trust God and listen to God. Read his word, pray, participate in the services, and when the Lord speaks, you'll be ready to hear. Samuel the prophet, even as a young boy, was taught, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And so the Lord did speak to him, and the Lord spoke through him. And we saw early on in the chapters that there were a lot of symbols at work in the lives of the people that reflect how there were people that were supposed to be following the Lord, but they were deaf, they were blind. Even old Eli, the priest that was training Samuel, was literally going blind. In today's uh, scripture passage, Samuel will be referred to with an old-fashioned term. In those times, they referred to the prophets as a seer. Will you say that word? Seer. It's not like Sears and Roebuck. It's like Seer Sucker Suit, that kind of S-E-E-R. But you can actually recognize what the word means because it is this. Seer. One who sees. So prophet, the prophet was known as the one who sees. What does that prophet see? They see the will of the Lord. They see what the Lord is doing in the world. They are able to see and to hear because they are open to what God has to say. But if we're close to what God has to say, if we want to come to the crossroads of his will versus ours and hold on to the right to choose our way, then that's unfaithfulness. And the people of Israel engaged in that, as did the people around them of different nations. And that affects a turning away from God's glory. But hallelujah, God's grace still reaches out. I, I want you to know, friend, today, if you are feeling in this moment the conviction that says, you know what, I've turned away from God. And the fact of the matter is, I'm scared even to hear what he has to say. I'm scared to submit my life to him. I'm scared to follow him because I'm afraid of where he's going to lead me and I'm afraid about what he's going to say to me. Do you know how many people miss out on the opportunity of blessing because they're afraid of God, but not in a way that reflects righteous worship, but instead in a way that sends them fleeing? Just like that first man and woman in the garden, Adam and Eve, who sinned and in their nakedness ran and hid. 
But God is calling you out. And yet, that's the pathway of repentance. Don't be afraid to come to the Lord, even if you've made mistakes, even if you've turned away from him in critical ways or over long periods of time. God's grace invites you in, into worship. Now, real worship involves sacred ceremony. There are things that God calls us to do. It matters that you're here present today. It matters if you're streaming and you're not able to be physically present, that you're a part of this this participation of worship anyway. It matters that we sing. It matters that we read the scriptures and pray. It matters that there's preaching that you can attend to. But superficial ritual alone is not sufficient to satisfy the heart and purpose of God, nor will it realize in you what God has made you to be. Real worship in spirit and in truth can be found when we return to the Lord with all our heart. The people of Israel had turned away from God, and so the glory of God's presence as as symbolized in the ark, was taken from them and held by their enemies. But the mighty power of God brought wrath upon their enemies until the ark was brought back. And when the ark came back, still the people struggled because they were still also realizing the consequences of their unfaithfulness. But finally Samuel said to them, the way of repentance is return to the Lord with all your heart. Will you say that? Return to the Lord with all your heart. Nothing held back. No turning back. So, how is it that the people move from that to be searching for a king, and why shouldn't they in search of? There used to be a show when I was a kid. It was narrated by Leonard Nimoy. At the time, I knew him better as Mr. Spock from Star Trek. It was a goofy show that was on in the late 70s, early 80s, but I used to love to watch it. It had that weird kind of eerie electronic music that was popular at the time for those sorts of features. And it was presented in a quasi-documentary style. It seemed very serious to me. I think it began with, you know, in search of ancient astronauts and that kind of thing. It was goofy. It was silly. But I, I really dug it as a kid. I didn't know. I remember my dad being very dismissive of it. He would sit there and say, well, this doesn't make sense and that doesn't make sense. I was like, shh, listen to Mr. Spock. <laughs> in search of, you know, Loch Ness Monster, in search of hidden gold in the Aztec kingdom. It was about this mystery, in search of. People can go searching, 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 never really wanting to find. Have you ever met people like that? Maybe you've sometimes been somebody like that. They're all about the search. They're all about the mystery. But the moment that you begin to sort of boil it down to some reality that has actual demands and consequences, no, I don't like that, you know. There are people who get involved in Eastern mysticism or other religions, but even their dedication to those types of belief systems isn't very devoted. It's just that there's an arena of mystery for them there, the mystique of it. I want to search around in that. That kind of searching isn't really seeking. It's just sort of playing. There's another kind of searching also, which is I'm going to keep looking until I find the thing that I like. In other words, it's not a discipline of saying, what is the empirical evidence suggesting to me? What is the reality of this situation? But rather, where can I find what I want to hear? The Bible refers to that as itching ears. There's something I want to hear, and when I find the person who's saying it, that's who will be my king. The search matters, but how you search and why you search is a big part of who you find and who you'll follow in that pursuit. 
When the people of ancient Israel were clamoring for a king so that we can be like all the other nations, that's what they say in verse 20 of chapter 8, Samuel the prophet knows in his, in his heart that the hearts of the people aren't right. He knows that their motives aren't right. He knows that they're not actually fixed on the Lord. The very thing that he called them to and they said, yes, we will do, is once again the thing that they are turning away from. But why? Because people want what they want. The heart wants what it wants. Have you ever heard that said? I've heard it. Well, it's true, but that doesn't mean the heart should get it. And maybe the heart ought to be careful what it asks for, because it just might get it. And that's something of what Samuel responds to. But the Lord says to Samuel, who feels, by the way, a bit rejected because Samuel is actually the judge and leader of Israel, and he has sons. Unfortunately, those sons aren't doing so well, but he feels that it's a rejection of himself and his family. The Lord says, in fact, Samuel, it's a rejection of me. But nevertheless, go ahead and give them what they want because I've chosen a man who I will put on the throne. Now, in looking at the scripture that we're looking at today, chapters 8 and 9, I think as modern believers, what we need to consider is who actually rules over our lives? And what does the evidence suggest of our lives? What is it that we say and do day in, day out, week after week, that really demonstrates who's the, the Lord over us? Are we looking for a different king? Are we looking for a different ruler? One that will comfort us according to what we want. One who will win our battles on our terms, on our timeline, but who will also help make us look more like the people around us. We want to fit in. We want to be like others. Well, that's a problem if you've decided to follow Jesus because Jesus is not a fit-in kind of guy. Jesus stood out. Jesus stood apart, not because he was aloof, but because people rejected him. And Jesus said, if you've decided to follow me, people will reject you too. Now, that doesn't mean we court rejection, and it doesn't mean that we languish in it or, or enjoy it. I can't stand that sort of martyrish attitude that loves for people to reject you because they think, look at how holy I must be, and you're thinking, no, you're just a jerk. You know, everybody rejects you because who would want to be with you? I'm no one in particular in mind. I just don't want to be that person. Sometimes I am. I try not to be. The point is not that rejection is something that we are uh, trying to engender, but we also need to be sure that we're not living in fear of it. Because if we let that govern our decisions, that becomes our king. The functional truth of our lives as followers of Jesus, and somebody who's watching today or hearing today and, and they're thinking, well, I don't know that Jesus is the Lord of my life or I haven't yet made such a decision. What would it mean for Jesus to be king? Here's what it would mean. It would mean that he's king of your heart, enthroned in your life, in charge of your actions. That you have to account to him. It doesn't mean that you have no choices available to you. It means that all of your choices are supposed to be submitted to his authority. That's what it means for him to be king. So these two chapters, I want to break them both into two parts and look at them together. First, we'll see Israel's demand. We want a king. Give us a king. But we'll also rip off the veil of that and see what's underneath. That's the external request. But the internal motivation, God makes clear. They don't want me. Because God was already their king. God said, you'll be my people, I'll be your king. And they were saying, we want a real king. <laughs> Samuel warned them. 
The Lord's going to give this to you if that's what you're asking for because that's the kind of king he is. But wait a minute, put on the brakes. Have you considered what you're asking for? Have you considered what you'll be getting when you get a king? Because you're not just getting a king, you're giving yourself to him and his authority. But the people were adamant. And so the Lord said, give them what they want and I'll show you the man. Now the man that God had in mind was himself on a search. He was in search of some lost cattle. But he was found by the prophet, by the seer who saw him and knew that the Lord had a calling upon Saul, the man who would be king. And so God answered the people's request. Let's take a look at these passages. This is all occurring in the latter years of Samuel's life. So we've really gone the gamut on Samuel's life in these eight chapters now, from before he was born to where he is now an aged man. And his sons are now being raised up to follow him. There's a kind of dynastic process that seems to be in work here, and, it, and it's typical of the era. Remember that Eli, the high priest, had also established his sons as priests after him. And in fact, this was the order in the nation of Israel according to the word of the Lord. There was a Levitical priesthood that was uh, operative down generational lines. All of the tribes were... Um, were genealogies of particular family members. For those of you in PSOM, yes, we have class today. You're learning about these people in these tribes. You know that the very, if you're in that class, you'll know the very youngest son of Jacob, the man called Israel, was Benjamin. And in fact, Saul, who will be king, comes from the tribe of Benjamin. So it was natural that there was instituted in families a kind of legacy. But the problem was that from generation to generation, Faithfulness was not necessarily carrying forward. And it wasn't always the fault of the parents. We could see in Eli, the high priest that we looked at in previous messages, the man who I referred to as going blind, and we can see in that a sort of symbolic expression of his own spiritual blindness, that there was a lack of commitment. There was a lack of courage. He knew the Lord, but he was not disciplining of his children to raise them in that. We don't know anything about Samuel's parenting but we can only imagine that everything described of Samuel to us is a man of extraordinary faithfulness. It's, it's inconceivable to me, based on the evidence of the text, that Samuel would have raised his sons in anything other than the absolute total admonition of the Lord. But look what verse 3 says. Despite the way that Samuel raised them, his sons did not walk in his ways. They didn't follow him. See, when you say, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, another thing that's entailed in that is that other people will look to you. No wonder Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, right? And so if you're following Jesus, you can say like Paul, if you haven't met Jesus yet, follow me, I'll introduce you to him. You're not trying to get people to follow you for the sake of following you. You're telling other people, I'm following Jesus. So if you come alongside me, pretty soon you're going to have a relationship with him too, if you are willing and open to receive that. But here's the problem. I was having a conversation with a beloved brother this week, in fact, in which we were talking about this very thing. God does not have grandchildren, as the saying goes. People have to come to their own decision about who is Lord of their life. And as faithful as Samuel had been, and as marvelous a model as he gave, it's still in the scriptures for us, his sons didn't follow it. 
That breaks my heart. But I tell you, it also gives me a sense of accountability and maybe a little encouragement. Here's the encouragement. If you're a parent or you have a family member or a beloved friend to whom you've witnessed over and over again and they don't follow Jesus and they continually reject and refuse following Jesus, the enemy, Satan, the devil who desires to destroy your soul will often bring to your mind a sense of guilt. You didn't do enough or you did the wrong thing. And maybe sometimes you didn't do enough. And maybe sometimes you did do the wrong thing. And he'll bring those things to your remembrance. And you'll feel so weighted down with the burden of that. Let me tell you something. Nothing you do could ever save anyone else anyway. Right? It's not you or I that can save anyone, but Christ Jesus alone. But you and I do have an accountability to share that truth. And so we need to do that faithfully and to the best of our ability and the best way that God enables us to do but sometimes we make mistakes in relationship we do falter and fail and those can actually be teachable moments and opportune moments as well but in any case at the end of the day if it was dependent on your perfection for other people to follow Jesus we'd all be in trouble but it's not dependent on your perfection it's dependent on his and he is perfect even Jesus had people who refused to follow him now, if they won't follow Jesus, then who are they going to follow? Not the right way. So, what am I saying? That you shouldn't care about those kids or those relatives or those relations? Not at all. I'm saying beware of the attack of the enemy that would try and burden you with guilt or make you afraid. But instead, continue to pray for them because it ain't over till it's over. Keep on praying. Keep on sharing in whatever way the Lord gives you. And sometimes the very best way is simply to continue living your faithful life before the Lord. But don't hide the truth and don't be afraid to share it, but also realize that ultimately it is going to be up to them to make a decision. But prayer is powerful, so keep on praying. Keep on believing. How about somebody who says, well, my child is gone or my parent is gone or that friend is gone, they've, they've passed on. Well, friend, they're in the hands of the Lord. And so you can trust the Lord to do right by them. But it also, as I said, is a sobering reminder. Just because you come from a faithful family, just because you had parents that taught you well, just because you had a pastor that taught you well, I'm not referring to me necessarily, but to any preacher or the person who got you saved, and you go, boy, that guy, that woman, they were really of the Lord. Well, great, but how about you? How are you living? These sons of Samuel might have walked around thinking, we are really it, man. We have got this down. But in reality, they were not on the path at all. They took bribes. They perverted justice. They sound just like the kids of Eli. Here is something to reckon with. The reality of a culture around you can be very powerful. So beware. Don't get comfortable just on the basis of tradition have a direct relationship with Jesus. So now the elders of Israel all come together. They come to Samuel. He's in Ramah. That's his home place. It's a place where there was a, a tabernacle of the Lord. And they say to him, look, you're old. <laughs> they, were, they were not going to cut any corners here. I mean, they were just going direct to the point. I guess they were cutting every corner. I should say. You're old. Your sons don't walk in your ways. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel. There is a sense of Samuel's wounded pride in this. I think it's fair. He's a person. He's like, hey, 
haven't I poured out my life to you? And, you know, my kids might not be perfect, but is this the way to treat me and my family? They say, give us a king to judge us. Look how Samuel responds, though. He's hurt. He's wounded. Does he lash out? Does he raise up an army? He could have. No. Does he go off into the wilderness and say, the heck with all of you. I've done it all for all this time. I'm done. No. He calls on the Lord. He prays. He says, speak, Lord, about this. Your servant is listening to what you have to say about this rejection that has cut me to the core. And the Lord says, do what the people say. Give them what they want. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Maybe somebody out there needs to hear this today. You feel rejected by coworkers. Or you feel rejected by family members. And the Lord wants you to know, stop being so personally hurt by that. Not because he's upset with you, but because he wants you to not carry that wound because it's really his. He's saying, it's not you. It's me. <laughs> Remember that on Seinfeld? It's not you, it's me. The Lord says, it's not you, it's me. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting my kingship. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. See, here the Lord is showing. He's revealing the long line of what this is really about. They came forward with all this piety. Oh, your sons aren't really doing it right, and we want a good king. But in fact, what they really want is their idolatry to be ensconced on the throne of a nation. They want strength that is visible to the nations around them. They want an understandable mechanism of leadership. They're confused about how do we really follow this God, not because God hasn't made it clear, but because they're looking for something else. They're looking for the thing that makes sense to them and that pleases them and that will impress people around them. And that's what it is about, and God knows it. He knows they're not really looking for something good. They're looking to be their own God. They want one of their own on the throne. Now, here's the irony. That's God's plan from the beginning. One of our own on the throne. Will you say that? One of our own on the throne. Let me ask among you here, with many Filipinos in the house, how would you feel if a Phil Am got elected president of the U.S.? There would be excitement, wouldn't there? Somebody who understands the background. I'm not saying that, 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 that you would necessarily vote for that person on that reason alone, but there'd be a sense of enthusiasm, one of our own on the throne, so to speak. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, when you have somebody with a background like yours or who is relatable to your experience, who looks like you perhaps, or talks like you, thinks like you, in a position of authority over you, there's a sense of confidence. They know where I'm coming from. They'll understand what I need. God has given you and I a savior, which is himself, but he's a man just like you and I, a person, relatable, tempted, and lived on this earth. He knew what it was to get tired. He knew what it was to be hungry. Friends, Jesus went to the bathroom. <laughs> you never really hear that from the pulpit. Can you imagine that? The indignity of God being reduced to biological functions as a necessity. It's extraordinary. Now, you might say, I didn't need that, but that's what it is to be human. He was human and is human. God always intended that there would be one who would rule over us who is one of us because that's what he made us for, to be with him, to rule with him. But the problem is that these people don't see God in their midst, and they want one that they can control. And Jesus is many wonderful things, but let me assure you of this. You cannot tame the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
He is wild unto his own will, and yet his will he has submitted to the Father, and he and the Father are one. But you do not get to dictate to the king of all creation what he shall do. Nevertheless, that king said, ask anything in my name, and I will do it for you. So there is a balance here that's been lost in the minds of these people, and the Lord sees it and knows it. And so he says to Samuel, the Lord does, give them what they want, but warn them first. Warn them and show them what a king is like. Now the people are trying, as I said, to present themselves, and people have a way of doing this. They know how to sort of frost the cake, make the request come in the right form. Oh, what we want is righteous people, not like you, your sons. And uh, uh, we're pious people. But really, there is a wrong heart, not only in the people, but sadly, even in Samuel's sons. The people aren't looking for God's will. They felt that the people around them, the nations around them, made fun of them, that they looked weak. They wanted a warrior king, but they didn't trust God to be him. Now, we've looked at the Samuel story in a kind of review this morning, and if it's taught us anything, it's taught us that patient trust in God's will is not going to be disappointed, but it does involve waiting. It involves waiting through hard times, facing overwhelming odds, and sometimes looking strange and even silly to people around us. If we're really going to honor Jesus' rule in our lives, we need to submit patiently and faithfully to the Lord in all of these things. So if Jesus is our king, we won't look for other saviors. We won't look for other defenders. I don't mean that you won't appreciate when the Lord brings you help, especially from among the body of Christ. But wherever the Lord brings you a righteous and worthy helper, great. And of course, the greatest helper is the Lord himself, the Holy Spirit. But you and I should not be looking for someone other than the Lord to be the savior of our life. And we shouldn't be caught up in trying to satisfy the opinions of people around us who don't follow Jesus. How are you going to follow Jesus if you are making him compete with the opinion of the culture around you or of people that you work with or even live with who don't follow him? Now, I'm not trying to create animosity anywhere. What I'm saying is seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first God as king. And then he will arrange and align the relationships around you. So Samuel makes the warning about what the consequences are. And I'm just going to summarize this. But he basically says, all right, this is what you're asking for. Let me tell you what it is. Let me make sure that you know that you're going to get a king who's going to rule and reign over you. He's going to draft your sons as charioteers and horsemen. They're going to be in the cavalry. He's going to appoint military officials. He's going to require field workers to plow and reap his harvests. He's going to have people to make weapons for him and tools. They're not going to be working on their own. They're going to be working for the king. He'll induct your daughters as perfumers and cooks and bakers and kitchen staff. He'll seize the best of your crops, the best of your vineyards. He'll take people for his palace servants and government officials. He'll enlist your male and female servants. He'll take your best young men. He'll take your donkeys. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. In other words, if you don't like him, you can't just reject him. You're going to have to serve him. And when that happens and you cry out because of your king that you have chosen for yourselves, the Lord is not going to answer that cry because he's warning you now that's what you're asking for. That's what you'll get. See, the Lord means what he says when he says what he says. And the Lord does what he says he will do. 
And so the Lord is saying, if this is what you're asking for, this is what you're going to get. And if you complain about it, you're not going to find me being sympathetic to that complaint. But still the people refuse. They say, no, we need a king over us so that we can be like all the nations, so that our king can judge us and can go out and fight our battles. They want somebody that the nations around them are going to be afraid of. Samuel's warning to the people of Israel affirms that age-old adage that I've already referenced, be careful what you wish for. Have you ever had something, I want you to think of it right now, put it in your mind, something that you really, really wanted, something that you worked for, dreamed for, prayed for, asked for, and then when you got it, you, it wasn't at all what you thought it was going to be. Can you think of that? It may be something even that the Lord said to you, don't, don't, that's not right for you, or that his word made clear to you, but it doesn't have to be. Could have been a good thing. Maybe it's something that when you got it, you're still in, in, in general, you can say, well, it was good, but it wasn't all that I thought it was going to be, and it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Wave at me if you have anything like that in your life. Boy, you guys need to get more prayers answered. I, I, I think there are, are many people who can relate to that. There were a few out there, so... You can, I'm not saying that, that the, I'm not calling you out as wicked sinners, but that's all of us, but we all have had times where there are things that we desperately want. Many of us have had the experience of getting that and realizing it's not what we thought it would be. But there are times also where you ask for something and it's not just not what you thought it would be, but it's actually disastrous. On the other hand, in the Lord, there's times where the Lord brings something your way that you never would have even asked for, and you're infinitely grateful for it. But Samuel's also illuminating for them this greater virtue, God as king. He's really making clear, this is what a human king would be like, but when God is your king, he doesn't do all of those things. God never takes advantage of his people. He does not abuse, he does not neglect people. Sometimes people feel like he does, but they're wrong. The reality of who God is, is that he does not abuse or neglect people, but human rulers can, and human rulers too often do. If Jesus is our king, then we'll realize that we have tremendous opportunity and authority granted to us in him. He did say, ask anything in my name, and it'll be given to you. Look at John chapter 14. But we need to marry that reality to another aspect of that equation in order to balance it out, in order to round it out, which is Jesus also said, pray this way to the Father, your kingdom come, your will be done in our lives just as it is in heaven. I believe this is what Jesus means when he says, ask it in my name. What he's saying is, ask it according to my model. Not like the sons of Eli, not like the sons of Samuel who look at the model and don't follow it, but rather like disciples of Jesus, we would ask for that which Jesus asks for. And what Jesus asked for is, your will be done, your kingdom come, your word be known, your name be glorified. And then the Lord speaks from the heavens and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the Lord will glorify himself in and through you as you ask him to do that. Ask him to shine through your life, to show up and show off in your life. And he will ask it with the authority and the power. But don't go to Jesus and try to compel him to do that which is against the will of the Father because that is not in his name. That's against his name. When God says, 
You're asking for something that you're not going to like, by the way. Listen to God. <laughs> I made that mistake. I once prayed a prayer that I will never, ever pray again. And I'll never say never. I should never pray again. I once prayed to the Lord and said, I, I want to be released from this commitment that I've made. And, uh, and, and I did not feel that the Lord was willing to release me. I kept praying, I kept praying because I was so unhappy with the situation. And finally, I had this sense that the Lord said to me, now some might say, well, I don't think the Lord would ever speak this way, and maybe you're right, I'm not certain how well I was hearing from the Lord in that moment because in part I was so desperately looking for what I wanted. But my sense was that the Lord was saying to me, if you really want it, I will allow it, but it's not what I would choose for you. And that was enough for me. And I wish that it hadn't have been. But it taught me something. Always ask for the highest will of God for you. Ask for God's best for you. Even if it looks like the worst towards what you want. Better that you should sacrifice what you want in order to receive what God wants than to have God say to you, I'll allow it, but I wouldn't recommend it. Because believe me, somewhere down the line, you're going to look back and realize I was wrong. Now, I think what the Lord said to me in that moment was, I'll be with you when you have that realization. It will be okay. And it was. But I do regret, and I did learn, ask for God's greatest. Now, Samuel's been told that there's a man, and I'm going to go quickly over this section, chapter 9, that God has in mind. And now we're going to learn about that man. As I mentioned, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, who when he was born, his mother died. And his mother, Rachel, named him Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. But his father, Jacob, renamed him Ben-Yamin, Ben-Jamin, son of my right arm, son of my strength. And so in Benjamin's very name, there is a sense, as I've mentioned before, of this kind of dichotomy, sorrow and strength. And we really see that in Saul. Saul is almost... Uh, uh, a, a tragic figure akin to what we might find in Greek drama, a kind of a corollary to Oedipus or so forth, or, or maybe even Hamlet in the English theater. That is to say, a figure who seems to be on a grand trajectory, but then there is ultimately this tragic end to the life of Saul. And so we're going to look at Saul closely in coming weeks. Not so much today, we just are beginning to scratch the surface of Saul. But I really find in Saul a fascinating figure because he begins well, but he doesn't end well. My uh, master's uh, study was in leadership from uh, the perspective of Christian ministry, concentration in Christian ministry. And we often talk in leadership literature in general, even in secular leadership, there is discussion of this reality of ending well, of coming to the conclusion of a period of leadership in a way in which the organization or the group of people are better, in which the circumstances are better than you found them. But especially in scripture, the notion of ending well has to do with remaining faithful to God's call and purpose. And unfortunately, that is where Saul is going to be challenged. As we talked about earlier, there's failure. But what's interesting also is, as we will see when we look at the life of David in the coming year, both of these men have marked failures. And if anything, though I won't get into the details now, the failures of King David would strike most contemporary people as worse than the failures of Saul. 
Saul makes a sacrifice when he's not supposed to. It's a ritual error, it would seem. Whereas David sleeps with another man's wife, gets her pregnant, and then arranges for that man to be killed in battle. That's pretty bad. That's adultery, murder, major malfeasance in the governance of the nation because he lies about it and he uses the infrastructure of the military and military officials to accomplish his wicked deeds. There is more to Saul's failure than what I've just described and there's more to David's as well. But the major difference is in David, there is a heart of repentance. Saul cries out in regret but his heart never turns back to the Lord in repentance. Whereas David says, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Renew a right spirit in me. So no matter what your failure might be, God's grace reaches out to you today and says, trust me. Now then, Saul, as I mentioned, begins well. And in this story, we are told that he's got all the hallmarks that you would expect of a king. He's handsome. He's tall. He's taller than anybody. Head and shoulders above anybody else in Israel. This is what they're looking for. We want a big strapping dude. We want Schwarzenegger, king of Israel. Right? We, we want a hero. I don't know, Vin Diesel, whoever you would say today. We want this dude to stand head and shoulders over it. Well, why not? Because you know who they're going to have to face off against. Later on down the line, you got Philistines like Goliath of Gath who's standing way over there. We want a big guy to go up against these big guys who are coming against us. Doesn't hurt if they're handsome. He's a movie star. He's got this uh, matinee idol looks. He's got muscles and brawn. Now, he's out looking for donkeys. His father's donkeys have been lost. And so his father says, take one of the young servants, go looking for the donkeys. So he's out all over the hill country of Ephraim. He's searching over all these different lands, all through Benjamin's area. They don't find them. They come to the land of Zuf, and Saul with, uh, says to his servant, come, let's go back, because my father's going to start worrying about us. He's going to freak out. We still haven't found the donkeys. He's going to be sending people looking for us. But the servant says, wait, there is a man of God in this city. He's a seer. He can see where the donkeys are. Let's go to the seer, and then he could tell us the way to go. And Saul said, but we don't have anything to give him. You know, you've got to pay a, a fee for that kind of service. Uh, we don't have any more bread, so what are we going to do? Saul says, oh, I've got, uh, the servant rather, says, I've got a little bit of silver. We'll give it to this man, and he'll tell us to go the way. And here we get an explanation of why in that time today's prophet was formerly called a seer. But I think it's an important element of the text also because it's really underscoring for us Two things. One is the people were really operating in this sort of transactional mindset. We've got some money. We can pay the seer. He'll find what we need. It's not a devotion to God. It's a functional economy. I want to hire you to do a service for me. But what the text is reminding us is actually the very title of this man's purpose is to see the Lord in things, to understand so Saul says to a servant, good, let's go. We've got a plan. They go to the city. As they're coming up to the city on a hill, they meet some young women. They say, is the seer here? They say, oh, yeah, you're just in time, actually. You better hurry because he came to bless a sacrifice. So go up right now. You'll meet him immediately. So they go into the city. And as they do so, they see Samuel, the prophet, coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. This is the place above the city where ritual sacrifices would be made. 
What is the point of Saul being searching for these lost donkeys? I think there is a sort of symbolic echo here, which is the very first king of Israel is a man who is searching for what was lost. And the Lord is going to anoint him to be the savior of his people. Now, Saul isn't the Christ, but everyone who sat on the throne of Israel was always intended to be a witness of the Messiah who was to come. That doesn't mean that they did, but that's what they were intended to be. And so also you and I. We are intended to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus. Doesn't mean that we will be, but that's what we're supposed to be. And that's what God would enable us to be. So what is being modeled here in the good beginning of is that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. The whole reason that Jesus came is because something had been lost that was precious to his Father, and it's you. <laughs> you are the donkey that Jesus was looking for. When he came into Jerusalem, Jesus, he came riding a donkey. Here is your king. If you've been searching for him, he's been searching for you even longer. Let him find you today. Finally, the day comes when they have met Saul and Samuel. But the Lord had already said to Samuel, the seer, the Lord had already shown him what was going to happen. Tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Now, you think, boy, what it would be like to have the Lord speak that way. God has not stopped speaking. Amen. Amen. Sister Nancy can hear him. Amen. So can you. First of all, he speaks in his word. But if you'll read his word, you say, this is Old Testament stuff. Well, nothing of the Old Testament is lost or gone, friends. Jesus said, I didn't come to break any of the law, but to fulfill it. Not one jot or tittle of the word of God will pass away. It's eternal. But go into the New Testament then if, if that's what you need as well. Look in the book of Acts where the Lord speaks this very way to Peter, to Cornelius, to, to Saul who becomes Paul. He speaks this way over and over again to Simeon. He speaks to people who are saying to him, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And so you too can see what others around you cannot see if you will be willing to see what the Lord gives you to see. So the Lord said to him, tomorrow this time he'll come. You're going to anoint him. That's what our message will be next week. This message is coming to a conclusion. And the conclusion is that the Lord says, this man, Saul, is going to be the one who saves my people. You see, God's purpose has never changed. It was to provide salvation to his people through a righteous king. I have seen my people. Guess who the seer really is? It's God. God sees. He sees your pain. He knows your need. He hears your cry. He's reaching out to help. So when Saul came before Samuel, the Lord speaks to him in that way that you can hear in your heart and says, here is the man. He shall restrain my people. In other words, shepherd them, harness them, help them to go in the direction that they are meant to go. So Saul approaches Samuel in the gate and says, um, can you tell me where the seer is? 
And Samuel says, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place. You're going to eat with me. And in the morning, I'll let you go. And I'll tell you all that's on your mind. By the way, the donkeys, don't worry about them. They, they were found. Uh, those donkeys that you lost three days ago. Three days. There's a bit of an echo there, isn't there? And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's house? Saul is saying, Samuel is saying, rather, to Saul, the thing that you came for has already been answered, but there's much more. There's a calling of God upon you, and the favor of God is upon you, and God is going to do something marvelous in and through you. And look at Saul's response. Here is the humility of heart that if only he would have held on to this, he could have been the great king that God called him to be. But he began with it at least, the humility of heart that says, my clan's the humblest of all the clans. Benjamin, the youngest son, smallest clan. And, and in Benjamin, I'm part of the smallest of that. The, uh, you know, my tribe is the smallest in Israel. My clan is the smallest in my tribe. I, I don't know why you're talking to me this way, says Saul to Samuel. But Samuel takes them nevertheless, brings them into the hall, gives them a place at the head of those who've been invited. Remember the parable that Jesus told? He said, don't, when you come into a place, don't go and sit at the very best seat of honor in a party. Sit in the back somewhere where, you know, you're, you're very humble. And better that you should be back there and somebody would come and say, no, 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 no. We have a better seat prepared for you than that you go up to the front and somebody comes and says, uh, excuse me, this is reserved for someone more important than you. Have humility. So Saul says, I don't deserve what you're saying to me, but Samuel is the one who says, come I've got a place prepared for you. And Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. I've gone to prepare a place for you. Our response to that should be, I'm the least in your kingdom. In fact, I don't even deserve to be in your kingdom. Not out of some kind of back-whipping uh, sense of, of ritualistic modesty that isn't even genuine, but out of a heartfelt humility recognize that what God is offering to you and I anything we could have ever imagined on our own. Samuel says to the cook, bring Saul the very best piece of meat. And then when the cook brings it there, Samuel says to Saul, see, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the appointed hour. Will you say that phrase? Until the appointed hour. God has something prepared for you. And when he brings it out, it's going to be the best. So patiently trust in him. But don't lose your heart of humility. Don't get proud thinking, oh boy, look what Jesus did for me. Instead, in the words of Kennedy, in effect, ask what you can do for your king. Because your king has already done everything for you. So Saul ate that day in that royal place, in that special privileged position. And then they came down and there was a bed prepared for him in Samuel's house up on the roof, a very nice place for guests. It's cool and pleasant. And then when dawn broke, Samuel said to Saul, okay, get up, you're going on your way. You're going to go back. But they get to the outskirts of the city and Samuel says, send your servant on. I want to talk with you here for a while. I want to make known to you the word of God. That's why I come and preach, because I desire to make known to you the word of God. 
And I cannot know the word of God except that God gave his word and shows his word. But I pray and ask, Lord, anoint me to help you and I together to see what the Spirit would show us and to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now, what's going to happen next, and we'll look at it next week, is that Samuel is going to anoint Saul as king. Even before there's an official anointing in the land, there is this ad hoc anointing that has been recommended by the Spirit. But today, as we come to our conclusion, I want you and I to hear this invitation of the Lord to us. Because in Saul, we do have a model for who we are. We are out there looking for the stuff that we've lost. We're out there searching and seeking for what we need. We're in search of something of meaning and purpose, of help and resource, of hope and light. And the Lord is saying to you and I today, I have prepared the answer for your need. If Jesus is our king, we can trust that our Father in heaven knows what we have need of before we even ask. When Jesus taught on that subject in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught it in the context of this. Don't be like the religious hypocrites who think that their prayers are impressing God. And don't be like the Gentile non-believers, the pagan people around you who engage in idolatry and think that with lots of words or with lots of ceremonial show or by cutting themselves and bleeding and screaming and making all these sacrifices that they are somehow going to force God to do something. Instead, recognize that your God is a father who loves you and already is doing what you need. The things that you think are lost, already found. The, the thing that you think you don't have, already prepared. And it's the best. But there's more. He wants for you to know him. Paul described it as the mystery. Maybe Mr. Spock, in all of his searchings, needed simply to see the mystery of God revealed, as Paul describes it in the book of Ephesians, that God desires for you to know him and to know his love and to receive his help and to be under the rule of his sovereign reign and let the blessings of God our King rain down on you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I have decided to follow Jesus, to know his word, to do his will, to seek his spirit, and there is no turning back. Amen? Lord, we desire to follow you faithfully, but all of us recognize that we have times when we falter and fail. All of us realize that there are times where your will seems to be at odds with ours, and it's hard for us to sacrifice our will for yours. There are times where we're confused. We don't seem to know what you are saying, or it seems to us like you've gone silent. There are times where we're afraid, and it seems to us that you are far distant. And there are times where our anxiety is so intense that it's hard for us to still our hearts and humble our souls and listen to you. But we ask for your help today, Lord. Help to be your people. Help to trust your will. Help to know your word. Help to do according to your ways. And so, Lord, I pray for each one that is participant in this prayer right now 
that your help would be known to them, that they would see how high and how wide and how deep and how strong and how great is the glory of your mystery revealed, of your desire and purpose for your people, of your love by which you have saved us, in which you cleanse us, through which you redeem us, and by which you empower us and set us on a pathway of purpose. Lord, for any that have never given themselves to you or that have been turned away from you and seeking out and searching something else or coming under the rulership and even under the burden of some other king in their life. Right now, Lord, with them, I ask, set them free. Set yourself on the throne of their life. Displace and remove every idol that vainly attempts to take your place. Come and rule over them and let your light shine upon them. Even now, that bright light, that brilliant warmth, that strong sense of your touch, of your love, the blood that you shed on the cross, cleansing them right now, the spirit that you gave as you went to the Father, your Holy Spirit, filling them right now with peace, with purpose, with hope, with faith, with patient trust and everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah.